Well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab those and go to John chapter 6 for our scripture reading this morning. But thank you for being here today. Uh, today we will read John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. And I'm using the New American Standard Bible version. But what I want you to see as we read is I want you to notice what is the mistake? What is the real root mistake that disciples make in the feeding of the 5,000? Notice it with me. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A very large crowd was following him because they were watching the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. But Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So Jesus, after raising his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread? So that all of this stadium of people may eat. But he was saying this only to test him, for he himself knew what he intended to do. Philip then answered him and said, Two hundred days' wages worth of bread is not enough for them, for each to receive just a little bit. One of his disciples did a little bit better. His name was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and said to him, There is a boy here who has a happy meal, who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? And Jesus said, okay, have the people reclined to eat. Now, there was plenty of grass in the place, so the men reclined, about 5,000 men in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were reclining, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. Verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, his disciples, he said to his disciples, gather up all of the leftover pieces so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with pieces from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Amen. Thank you. Before we dive in uh, too deep, uh, the verses that we just, or the songs that we just sang, uh, reminded me of a passage that I would like to share with you all to hear this morning. This comes from Psalm 103. It says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, and he knows that we are but dust. Bow with me in a quick word of prayer, and then we will go in. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we are so undeserving of your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness of our lacking and of our sin and of our mistakes. Lord, it is amazing that we can come together and worship a God that, that exudes, that is perfect in every single way, yet chooses to forgive our imperfections. And Lord, you say in your scripture that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and it cleanses from all unrighteousness. Lord, I just pray that if there is a sin in our life that we are hiding, that we are avoiding uh, dealing with and asking for forgiveness for, I pray that we would ask for your forgiveness and that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, I just, 
pray for this morning. I just pray that you would open our eyes and that we may see your word. And Lord, that it would go beyond our minds, but it would activate our emotions and change our lives forever. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we talk about passing God's test. Passing God's, we would say, pop quiz. And passing God's test comes down to a fact to know and a question to ask. Let me ask you a question. When is the time that God tested you? Perhaps God put you at a fork in the road and He required of you that you would fully trust Him. Maybe you've had a moment like Abraham when God calls him to the land that He will show him. Abraham still had to make a choice and pass the test. Uh, Personally speaking, there are uh, many times that I could think of that when God tested me to see if I would really choose to trust Him or not. But one that is most vivid in my mind it comes at the time of seminary. Uh, personally speaking, uh, I knew at the age of 19 that I wanted to go into ministry. I knew that I wanted to be a full-time pastor. I knew that I wanted to teach. I basically wanted, knew what I wanted to do right now, that I'm doing exactly what I've always desired to do. But at the age of 19, I got my call. But then at the age of 22, I got married. And then I started working full-time in corporate America. And financially speaking, I began to get very comfortable. I started making good money. I was next in line for a promotion. But the whole time, I felt like God was calling me to a land that I did not know to trust him and to go and to pass the test, would I actually go to seminary? But at the age of 25, I'd worked three years in corporate America. I became very comfortable in my job. Didn't particularly like my job, but just like a lot of us, but anyways, moving on, okay. But I, uh, I became very comfortable. And then God is saying, Byron, pack up all your stuff in a moving truck and go to a land that you do not know. I had no jobs lined up. I had no friends, no family in Dallas, Texas, where seminary was. We had no way of providing for ourselves. I remember we had one month of expenses in the bank, no debt, and all we had was a place to live. And then, oh, by the way, I had that $60,000 seminary price tag staring me in the face. But I didn't care. We moved to seminary, we packed all of our belongings in a moving truck, and we drove to Dallas, Texas, probably scared out of our minds. But then within a month, the Lord provided my wife with a job on campus, giving us half-off tuition. I had two jobs. And then after a year of being in Dallas, Texas, somebody came up to me and said, I would like to pay for the rest of your schooling. But if I had never gone, if we had never trusted the Lord, if we had never looked past this impossible obstacle to truly walk the path that God has for us, we would have never seen or had that story to tell. We would have never have seen the faithfulness of God in the midst of difficult or impossible circumstances. Friends, some of you here this morning are facing a similar circumstance, that God is bringing you to a fork in the road, and He is asking if you will truly trust Him. Perhaps some of you here today, that you're kind of in a good spot, and maybe your test is coming, but I guarantee you this, that there is a test that is heading your way, and will you truly trust God? 
Will you truly understand who He is? That He is God, that He is sovereign, that He is the ruler over all things, and that He has your good and His glory in mind. There is a test coming your way. And if you get the right answer, then you move forward to the next class. But if you flunk the test, guess what? You will pass, you will take the same exam over and over and over again until you finally get the right answer. What does it take to pass God's test? That is the question that we have. Because in John chapter 6, Jesus presents a test to his disciples to see if they have learned a very valuable lesson. Jesus presents to them, I believe in verse 6 of chapter uh, 6 of John, he says that he is testing his disciples. But what is he testing them on? If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 6 as I turn over from Psalm 103 from earlier. Jesus is testing his disciples, but what is he really testing them on? Today, we will look at verses 1 through 14, and what we really see is that there are three different tests, one for Philip, one for Andrew, and one for the crowd. They each have the same answer, but each of them respond poorly in their own particular way. Now, if you notice in John chapter 6, this is a very famous passage. It's called, you know, the feeding of the five thousands. This is the uh, fourth miracle recorded in the gospel of John. And it is the only miracle that is recorded in all four gospels. But what I want to do this morning is I do not want to take a, uh, a, a harmony of the gospels approach where these stories kind of come together and we see how they are similar. Really what I want to do this morning is something a little bit different. I believe that the gospel of John presents this story of the feeding of the 5,000 for a particular point, for a particular story and particular angle. And that is the angle which I hope today, I hope to capture John's unique bent of this story. And if you notice from this bird's eye perspective, you have the setting of the test in verses 1 through 5, and then you have the story of the test in verses 6 through 14. Notice it. Notice the setting for the test. Verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. Notice that. And a large crowd was following him, because they were watching the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. But Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he was with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So Jesus, after raising his eyes, notice that. This is the same verbiage in chapter 5. That becomes very important for a particular reason. I'll show you why in just a second. So Jesus, after raising his eyes, and he sees the crowd, was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that all these people may eat? What I said is verses 1 through 5 is the setting of the test, and verses 6 through 14 is the story of the test. And notice with me, there's a few details I'd like to point out for us. Detail number one is it says that Jesus is near the Sea of Galilee. Now, when I was growing up in Sunday school, okay, I pictured the Sea of Galilee like, like the ocean, okay? All right, this this massive body of water, but it's really not. It's actually pretty small. It's only 64 square miles. It's basically eight by eight miles. To put that in perspective, it's twice the size of Madison. 
Okay, that's how big the Sea of Galilee actually is. Now, that seems kind of big to us, but let me put that in perspective. Lake Superior, in the northern part of our continent, okay, is 31,000 square miles. Compare that to 64 square miles. So the Sea of Galilee, by, by, by comparison, is a very small body of water. But then notice what else it says. It says in verse 1, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. Now, why does he say Tiberias here? This is going to get a little bit into the culture. The puppet, the puppet king of Israel at the time, Herod Antipas, decides to rename the Sea of Galilee after the emperor Tiberius Caesar. Okay, So he decides to take it upon himself to rename the Sea of Galilee to something else. That is why he calls it the Sea of Tiberius. But more importantly, notice the second detail. Notice timing. Verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. What is verse 4 giving us here? It is giving us the timing of this story. Allow me to put that in perspective. I believe I said something different a few weeks ago, so I'm going to correct my error here. To put the Gospel of John in perspective, from John chapter 2, verse 13, to John chapter 6, verse 1, that is one calendar year. Okay, So that is one calendar year in the Gospel of John. And then the feast that comes in John chapter 5 is something different. I thought that maybe in John chapter 5 the feast that I was talking about is the Passover feast, but it's something completely different. From John 2 verse 13 to John 6 is one calendar year, and in John 5 is the exact middle between the two. That feast in John chapter 5 is the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Passover celebrates what? God in a sense, passing over the doors of the Jews before they escaped captivity of Egypt in the book of Exodus. The Feast of Tabernacles kind of comes right halfway in between. It comes six months later. And the Feast of Tabernacles is celebrating, or is, I shouldn't say celebrating, but commemorating Jesus or Israel's time in the desert. So you have John chapter 2, verse 13, to John chapter 6 is one calendar year. Now, um, some some of you are probably asking me why is this all important, Byron? Okay, that's probably what's coming next. Think about what Jesus has been teaching the disciples for the last six months. Okay, we have John chapter two, verse thirteen through chapter six, that we have that calendar year, and that we could say in that calendar year that he teaches the disciples a few different things. That he, in the beginning of John two, John three, and John four, what is he really teaching? He he's teaching the Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, the well. He's teaching the disciples what that he is the savior of the world, that he is the Lamb of God that has come to take away the sins of the world. That he is basically told the Samaritan woman, the Nicodemus, and all of his disciples from John chapter two to John chapter four that he is the savior of the world that by faith in him that they can be saved but he kind of turns to a different lesson in john chapter 5 in a, in a sense there's still this theme of salvation that we see but there's also a different message altogether in john chapter 5 what is the message in john chapter 5 that jesus is not just savior of the world but that he is the son of god let me put that in perspective jesus is teaching in john chapter 5 that he is God. He's not just part God. He's not just God's greatest creation. He's far. He's not those things. Jesus is fully divine. He is the Son of God. 
if you were here for John chapter 5, then think about John chapter 5 for just a second. It breaks down into three main sections. Verses 1 through 17, what happens? That Jesus walks, he raises his eyes, just like he says in John chapter 6. Jesus raises his eyes and he goes into the pool of Bethesda. And what does he see? He sees a great multitude of people sitting beside the pool. But he sees, he raises his eyes, just like he does in John chapter 6. He raises us and he sees a man that is ill, that has been sitting beside the pool for 38 years, sick. Now, being sick for 38 years is, I can't even imagine that, first off. Uh, but also, this man has false hope. But Jesus proves his deity by healing this man when nothing else could. Then Jesus talks about his authority, his divinity, his authority which comes from the Father in chapter 5, verses 18 through 30. And then Jesus talks about his authenticity, authenticity, excuse me, from verses 31 through 47, that Jesus is truly God. Now, how does, okay. How does Jesus prove that he is fully God? He proves it with four witnesses, if you were here. He proves it through John the Baptist, through his own works, through God the Father, and through the Scripture himself. So, John chapter 5, the reason I'm, I'm telling you all this for a very particular reason, because I want you to bring it into John chapter 6. Jesus has beat into the head of the disciples that he is fully God. That he's not just a prophet, he's not just a Messiah, but that Jesus Christ is fully God. Now bring that into John chapter 6 in the test that he has. Notice the story of the test. Okay, so Jesus is God, and that is the lesson that he's been teaching them all semester long. Verse 5. So Jesus, after raising his eyes, I believe that links it to John chapter 5, after raising his eyes and seeing the large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So what happens here? Jesus walks into a football stadium, okay? And he sees all of these hungry people, and then he turns to Philip and says, where are we to buy bread for all of these people? And notice how Philip responds. Philip answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not enough for them for each to receive just a little. What's the one question on the final exam? He says, where are we to buy so that these people may eat? That's the question, but what's really Jesus asking him? He's asking Philip, he's asking Andrew, he's asking asking the disciples, do you truly understand who I am? I've been spending six months teaching you about my divinity and my deity. Do you truly believe that and understand it? Because if Philip here understood that Jesus created Jupiter... Okay, if he understood that Jesus holds molecules, they probably didn't know what that was back then, but if he holds molecules together, then certainly Jesus, being the Son of God, could solve the problem. But what does Philip do instead? Philip walks into the football stadium, sees all of these hungry people, and then instantly counts how much it would cost to feed all of these people, and it is 200 denarii. What does Philip fail to see? Test number one is Philip fails to see Jesus as God, forgetting Jesus' power. Philip's reaction is that he is quick to tally up the cost of what it takes to feed a football stadium. Now, it's 200 denarii. Now, we, in our, how much is that? So in this culture, a denarii is a one day's wage, is one day labor. Okay, so basically, in order to feed these, this football stadium just a little bit, right, you would have to work 200 days according to Philip. Now, allow me to put that in perspective, okay? 
So the average wage of an American is $165 a day. $165 a day. Times 200 days. So Philip is basically saying that, oh, by the way, Jesus, it's going to cost me $33,000 to feed these people. Now, if you were Philip and you saw the $33,000 price tag, you would probably be a bit concerned as well. Can I get an amen to that one? But what is Philip forgetting? He's forgetting John chapter 5, that Jesus is not just a man, he's not just a prophet, he's not just the Messiah, but that he is the Son of God, that he can solve the problem at hand. But Philip is too busy looking at the circumstances, looking at the obstacle in his life to see that Jesus can solve the problem. When God puts us to the test, when God lays in our lap, an impossible obstacle, what do we do? Do we act like Philip here who gets all stressed? He reacts with stress. He just looks and he says, Jesus, I don't have $33,000. You know, friends, when, we, when God allows a, a gigantic obstacle, an impossible obstacle that we cannot conquer, and when he drops it on our lap, when he brings us to a fork in the road where we have to make a life-altering decision, some of us are Philip. Some of us just get all stressed out at the difficulty of the task instead of what? Instead of remembering that Jesus is God, instead of remembering Jesus' power, that Jesus is sovereign, that he's the creator of all things and he holds the universe together. So many of us are so quick to get stressed out of the test that God gives us instead of looking to the Savior of the world. So we see Philip... Answer wrongly, test number one. But then notice how Andrew reacts, verse eight. And one of his disciples does a little bit better. His name is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he said to him, there is a boy here who has, like I said, a happy meal for these 20,000 people. This might work. Um, There is a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Test number one is Philip fails to see Jesus as God, forgetting Jesus' power, reacting with stress. Test number two is Andrew fails to see Jesus as God, forgetting Jesus' provision, and reacting with a lack of gratitude. Notice verse nine. But what are these for so many people? What should Andrew have said? You know, Philip should have gone to Jesus and said, well, Jesus, why don't you help me solve the problem? Because, oh, by the way, you're God. You're the creator of fish themselves. So help me out here. But Andrew basically walks into a football stadium. He sees all of these hungry people, and he holds up a happy meal to Jesus. He says, what is this for all these people? But what is Andrew forgetting? He's forgetting that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is deity, that sitting right beside him, the, the person has the ability to solve the problem themselves. Can I, can I just speak bluntly? Um, some of us are Andrew. That we see the problems of life, we see the obstacles that we face, we see it, and then we say to God that it's not enough. We don't have enough money. I don't make enough. I don't have a big enough house. I don't have a big enough car. That we take what God has provided for us and we are completely lacking gratitude. Jesus knows perfectly well what he plans to do, but Andrew, all he can focus on is a lack of provision. 
He has this obstacle. He has this task, this fork in the road, this impossible thing of feeding all these people. And all Andrew could think about is, I don't have enough God. When God tests us, what should we do? My Partly of my points on the back of your notes, and we'll put it all together at the end. But my second point today is when tested, remember God's power and provision. But there's a third test here that we fail to see. So we see Philip and Andrew, but then there's somebody else that really is tested as well. Notice verse 10. Test number three is the crowds. Jesus said, have the people reclined to eat. Now there was plenty of grass in this place. So the men reclined about 5,000 in number. Now if you notice that, other gospel accounts say that that's just men, so we have to include women and children. So there's probably 20,000 people sitting there. And Jesus then took the loaves. After giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were reclining, likewise also of the fish, of the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with pieces from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. What is Jesus doing here in verses 10 through 15? I'm going to talk about the crowds here in just a minute. But in essential, just the basic distilling fact, what is Jesus really doing here? What is he proving once and for all? Only God could take a happy meal and feed a stadium. Jesus is practically proving to his disciples and to the crowds that he is fully divine. But guess what happens here in a day, that night? What Jesus retests them again by walking on the water. That's test number two. And how do they pass that one? Right? Jesus keeps on circling the wagon until they finally understand that not only is Jesus the Christ, not only is he the Messiah, not only is he a fully man and the prophet prophesied in Deuteronomy, but that he is fully God. That is the crux of the disciples' struggle with trusting Jesus Christ. And here, Jesus proves it once again. Um, it's a good thing that I am not Jesus. I'll say it that way. Because after the first day of putting up with the disciples, I would want to zap them, okay? It would be so exhausting. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine, how many people do I have to heal? How many food items do I have to create for you people to believe? And then what does Jesus do in John chapter 6? He has what left over? He has the 12 baskets left over. Now, there's a lot of scholars that talk about what that actually means. Some people believe that it's talking about the 12 tribes of Israel. I think he's for the 12 disciples. That here is this object lesson. Here is this basket that is proving the lesson that he's been trying to teach them for the last six years. And here it is. This is almighty proof that Jesus is the Son of God. But then, don't forget or don't fail to realize what the crowds do themselves. Verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, aware that they intended to come and take him by force, to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain to himself alone. 
Whereas Philip fails to see Jesus' power, Andrew fails to see Jesus' provision, the crowds fail to see Jesus' person. They fail to understand that he is not just prophet. Notice what they call him. Notice the irony here in this passage. They say this, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. What's the irony here? The irony is that they're right. That Jesus is the prophet, but the problem is is that he's far more than that. They're reaching back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, which says this, that I will raise up for myself a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them everything that I have commanded, commanded him. So the crowds are reaching back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, but they are completely foregoing the other prophecies that pointed Jesus as God. Now, uh, I, I, I think it would be a little bit chaotic to be on a football field after somebody wins and the crowd tears down the goalpost. I mean, have you ever seen that before? Okay. Am I, anybody actually done that before? I'm just kidding. You don't have to confess to that. Okay. Uh, but I, I would imagine that would be a bit chaotic, right? After a big win in a stadium of 50,000 people, they would run on the field and tear down the goalpost. But I think this scene is far crazier. Because 20,000 people have just been fed. Maybe it's after Thanksgiving, they're tired. But I would imagine that they see, in John chapter 14, that they see that this is their, this is their prophet. This is the one that had, they have been looking for. But notice also what else do they think Jesus is. Not only do they think that he is the prophet, but they also think he is king. Notice verse 15. I will raise up, excuse me, verse 15 of chapter 6 says this. Jesus therefore perceiving that they were intending to come and to take him by force to make him king withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So as Philip reacts to the stadium of hungry people with stress, Andrew reacts to the stadium of hungry people with a lack of gratitude or ungratefulness, how do the crowds react? They react with impulsiveness, right? They don't fail to actually comprehend the lesson that they're actually learning. They just kind of forego the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach them. And they try to take this guy named Jesus and make him king. They are very impulsive in their decisions, Friends, some of you, I believe, are going through a test right now. You're going through some kind of trial that God has put in front of you a stadium of hungry people. That God has put in front of you an obstacle that you are impossible to conquer. To some of you, otherwise, just like me when I was in seminary, Jesus, uh, God has put before you a fork in the road. That Will you truly trust me to make this decision? And some of us deal with these kind of obstacles with stress, trying to figure out all the costs and all the analytics. Some of us struggle to see this just like Andrew did, but some of us are the crowds. We struggle when God puts a task in front of us that we are impulsive in our decision making. That we just run to get another job to pay for that bill. We run to this and we run to that. But then let's just let's go a little bit deeper on this regard. If we have the nature of impulsiveness, and if you are impulsive and you try to solve all the problems yourself without even asking the Lord what he wants, and when the impulsive nature doesn't work out, what is our countenance then? We probably go down into the spider web of despair. What do you think about the crowds? 
Jesus disappoints them. He, uh, on Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, proclaiming himself to be king, but then he does not overthrow the Roman Empire, right? And then what do the crowds do? They are in despair, and they crucify him on the cross. Friends, that when we struggle with an obstacle, if we have the impulsive nature, we probably also struggle with complete despair when we do not know what to do. But Jesus is God. I'm going to say that one more time, and if you haven't gotten the memo by now, that's kind of like the whole point of this sermon. Uh, Jesus is God. He is the creator of the universe. He holds all things together, that he is in and of himself a loving savior, that he is working all things out for your good and for his glory, that despite whatever obstacles you may face in your life, that God is somehow leading you down the road and that he is in control of all things. My point today is this, that when you are tested, remember God's power, provision, and purpose. When tested, remember God's power, provision, and person. Excuse me. Perhaps there is a no more timely reminder that Jesus is still on the throne, that he is still in control, and that he still loves us in the midst of 2020 disaster. Okay. My application for us today is actually pretty simple. Is application number one is how is the Lord testing you? I think sometimes in order to pass the test, that is the first and major requirement for us to see that the Lord is testing our faith. Is the Lord bringing us to a fork in the road? Is the Lord putting in our path an impossible obstacle for us to conquer, like feeding 20,000 people? Is the Lord testing your faith? Because, friends, if we don't take application number two and number three, guess what happens? We fail the course, and then we just go on repeating it until we get the right answer. That's what happens to the disciples in John chapter 6. Application number one, how is the Lord testing you? And then application number two is a fact to remember. What I see is that if we're going to pass the test that God has for us, then we must remember the fact that Jesus is God. That he is in control. We live in a world that we think right now is completely out of control. Can I get an amen to that one? <laughs> okay, I got a big one. Okay. We live in a time where we look at the world and we say it's completely and totally out of control. But it's not. Because God is on the throne. God is in control. That God is working through the circumstances of our broken society for His glory and our good. The fact I want you to remember is fact number two is that Jesus is God. And then application number three is a question to ask. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples in John chapter 6 when they, they walk into the football stadium. Jesus says to them, how are you, Philip and Andrew, how are you going to feed these people? Philip just is beside himself. Andrew goes and runs the McDonald's and gets a happy meal. But what should they have asked? What should they have done? Notice, no one asks Jesus for the right answer. They don't ask Jesus anything. They just take it upon themselves to try to figure it out, right? They pull themselves up by the bootstraps, okay? Instead of just asking Jesus, Jesus, what do you want? What is the right answer to this quiz? 
The question that we should ask when we face a fork in the road is just ask God, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do, what do you want? But so many times we're so busy, we're so stressed out, we're so impulsive, we're so busy tabulating the cost of moving that we fail to even ask God a question. God, what is your will? What do you have for me in this situation? My hope today, my purpose today for all of this is for us not to repeat the same course in life over and over and over again. (laughs) But that we pass God's test that he has before us and that he will come with with a question to ask and with a fact to remember. So when tested, remember Jesus' power, provision, and person, that he is loving and that he is in control of all things. Before I close today, I always do this, and I've, um, if it gets old for you when I do this, I don't really care. Sorry, I'm not cynical. Um, you and I are sinners. What does the scripture say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we are imperfect people. Can I get an amen to that one? Just look at our world if you're not convinced of the depravity and the sinfulness of man. That you and I are imperfect people and that God is perfect and that between us and God that there is an impassable chasm that we cannot possibly earn our way to heaven. We cannot possibly do enough good things to earn perfection before a perfect God. But what happened? That Jesus saw our plight He saw our condition, and he decided to reveal his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That between an imperfect people and a perfect God, Jesus Christ came and he died on a cross to pay for the penalty of my sin, that if I would believe in him, then I would have everlasting life. I would imagine you've heard that before. And I would imagine that that, to some of us, is old news. But to some of us, that probably has never really sunk in before, that you are imperfect and that we need to believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior in order to have and attain heaven and earthly changed life. If you have never believed in Christ Jesus, then he offers to you this gift that you only open by faith. Will you believe and will you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? I will close with something I did not intend. Uh, After this missions conference, after this passage that centers on this idea of Jesus' deity, I'm going to close with the book of Colossians chapter 1. For he, Jesus, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. It's awesome. And he is the image of the invisible God, first place of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or presidents or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And Jesus is before all things, and in him all Things hold together.
That is the Savior that we worship, and that is the Savior that died for us. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, I just... uh, Lord, I just... I pray that we would just walk away with the practical and theological thought that you are God. That you're not just my Savior. You're not just a man that came and he lived. You're not just a prophet. You're not just my Savior. You're not just my Lamb of God. But that you are the creator of the universe. And that you hold all things together. Because, Lord, one day here very soon, we will be like the disciples. We will walk into a stadium of 20,000 people. We will walk into life with an impossible task. And, Lord, we're going to run to stress. We're going to run and be impulsive. We're going to run into a lack of gratitude, feeling like we don't make enough or we don't have enough to solve the problem. But, Lord, we do have enough because you are enough. We do have enough because you are enough in any situation that we may face. And, Lord, that you are working the situations of our life for your glory and for our good. What manner of love is this? Lord, I just pray that we would uh, be the disciples, we would not be the disciples, that we would learn the lesson quickly so that we can progress in our spiritual life and in maturity and that we can walk with you. And Lord, I, I thank you um, for the missions conference. And Lord, I, I found the testimony of the men of Restoration Ranch very refreshing of how they talk about what it means to walk with you and to walk by your spirit and in your word. And Lord, I pray that, that is the echo of my prayer today, that we would walk with you, that we would have a relationship with you that goes beyond Sunday morning, but it goes to every day of our lives. And Lord, forgive us for our sins and for the many ways that we fail. And Lord, we have a great Savior who is God, who has is, who is redeemed us from a life of darkness. And Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for those that are here. Thank you for those that are tuning in online. We appreciate them all. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.